is from Mark 12, 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Next slide, please. <laughs> well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning uh, again. Uh, we, we now come into a time of just diving into the Word together as a community here, and we're continu continuing our series uh, called Living Life As, as we speak on different relationships that we have uh, in life. Uh, we started off, Pastor Bill from UGM started off the series two weeks ago for us, speaking on the topic of friendship, how friendship really is the basis for all relationships. And then last week we talked about singleness, uh, and what God's purpose is for singleness and how singles, we just honored our singles in our congregation that they really embodied the future glory uh, of, the, of the church, of us as Christians, that in the end, that we all started off single and one day we were all going to be single as well. And they embody for us what it means to have this relationship with Christ. If you missed that, like all the recordings are online, you can listen to that uh, on our podcast and whatnot. But today uh, we speak on... I guess I speak on the topic, we're going through the topic of dating. Uh, what does biblical dating look like? Uh, what is dating? Do we date uh, as Christians? Uh, how do we understand uh, this topic? I, I came across a news article this week, and maybe uh, you would have too, that talked about the tides. You're like, Doug, I don't read stuff like that. Maybe only you do. I was just reading up on the tides how it's been the lowest tides in a decade here in the lower mainland on the coast. And why is that? Well, it's something, you know, if you know tides are due to the gravitational force of the moon and the sun, and when they all line up, like crazy things happen uh, around the earth. But it so happened that at this time, there's something called the spring tides, which is extreme high and low tides. And combine that with the moon's close distance to the sun, and combine that with something called the lunar standstill, <laughs> which is uh, how high uh, uh, in the horizon, or uh, how the degrees that the moon reaches both north and south, they reach its climax. So this is the farthest north and south of the equator is going to be uh, in the next for the next 18.6 years uh, exactly. So it all kind of lined up, and then so this, the shores of our coast, uh, so there are areas that were exposed that we haven't seen in a very long time, like some 20 years, uh, because four more feet of land were seen. Uh, four more feet of land were seen as you go to the beaches. And I don't know if we have any beachcombers here. Uh, it, was, uh, it was heaven for them, the touch of heaven <laughs> for them as they went off. And we're able to see parts of the intertidal zone. I love throwing these little phrases. Uh, the places where the ocean ebbs and flows, uh, see all the living creatures and whatnot. Why am I mentioning this? Well, 
I feel I feel like uh, through the series, it's acting a bit like that, where we're in this specific moment, specific time, to talk about these specific topics, and we're going a little bit deeper, revealing the depth of these topics that we normally don't talk about a whole lot, like gain a little bit deeper understanding, and in which case, today is about dating. And love, just like the tide, it can pull us in all sorts of directions if we're not careful. So today, in this passage, what we're really talking about is really realigning our loves and how that connects to dating. Now, why are we talking about this? I kind of hinted at it already, but some of us are dating, and maybe you need a few tips. <laughs> I don't know uh, what you're here today. You just need to understand what dating is about, and maybe there needs to be some realignment that goes on. Some of us want to date, right? So eventually you're going to be on a date, like, hey, how do I behave on a date? Or like, what is dating all about? And maybe this will help you today. Uh, some of you know friends uh, and, and family that are dating, and maybe they'll ask you for advice. They're talking about this, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And maybe uh, you have a little few nuggets, like, wow, like I just heard a sermon on this, and you know, just drop some quotes uh, on them. But some of us uh, are married, and I encourage our married couples, especially through the marriage prep process, that you never stop dating. And then you never stop dating each other. You keep pursuing, and you keep loving, you keep being intentional with each other. So one of the first questions I want to answer straight up here in the beginning is, the common question that I receive is, is dating biblical or not? Like, Doug, like, aren't Christians, like, the goal is just to get married, and you should just find someone and get married tomorrow? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? So it's dating biblical or not. Well, you, some of you might remember this book uh, by Joshua Harris. Uh, that was released in 2003 where it was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it's been widely disputed now because he didn't just kiss dating goodbye, but he kissed his marriage goodbye. Probably shouldn't say that. Uh, but it's recorded. Okay, so he kissed marriage goodbye <laughs> as well, divorcing his wife a few years ago and denouncing the faith. So the book is kind of pressed to the side. Uh, but it was all the rage. That's my, my point is it was all the rage. Back in the 2000s, kiss dating goodbye. I'm not dating anyone. I'm going to be married to Jesus or I'm going to marry the next man and woman that we're going to go into this community relationship with. And this caught on and people vowed into this radical kind of singleness, uh, relationship kind of understanding. And in essence, what Harris was saying is that dating hurts people because there's bad relationships out there. Therefore, dating is bad and no one should ever date. That was his big thesis. Uh, it's like saying people die in car accidents, so we should never drive. Uh, cars are bad. But we see in both instances, dating and in cars, that dating in the car isn't the problem. What is it? It's the people. It's our understanding of dating. It's our, the way we operate the car. People are the problem. And dating can be good. And I want to recommend this book to you. Uh, it's called Boundaries in Dating by Cloud and Townsend. And, and he outlines, the author's outlined seven reasons for the benefits of dating. I'll quickly just go through it here. But dating, it gives people the opportunity to learn about themselves, other, and other, others, and relationships in a safe context. You see, when dating is done properly, dating is a kind of an incubator of discovering the opposite sex, discovering your own feelings, discovering your own moral limits, how far you are you going to go, discovering your own relational skills. Number two, dating provides a context to work through issues. You see, many couples that I know now that are happily married, they wonder what would happen if they have married their first boyfriend. 
or they married their first girlfriend. And some of you might have, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that <laughs> at, all, at all. You're like, wow, what does that mean, right? Uh, no, like, like, no, I'm not saying anything wrong. But the thing is, dating provides a context to work through certain issues, that you talk about deeper things. You, you see what works and what doesn't work. You discover more about your own character. You discover more about your own spirituality and what you believe. Number three, dating helps build relationship skills because by definition, dating means there's someone else. So you can apply relationship skills uh, in that context. Number four, dating can heal and repair, meaning there's past hurts and pains that as you discover and talk about those together, you heal uh, together. Dating is relational and has value in and of itself, kind of self-explanatory. Number six, dating lets someone learn what he or she likes in the opposite sex. You discover uh, um, what you like and what you enjoy. What, 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 are the, uh, um, uh, what are the certain personalities that you're attracted to? Uh, who is it that you love and who is it that you're drawn to? Number seven, dating gives a context to learn se sexual self-control and other delay of gratification. See, th so though dating has many positives, dating itself is neutral. What I've been trying to paint a picture of it, the difference maker is the people. It's our understanding. It's who is dating and, and who you are dating. Uh, who is dating and how to understand dating is really, really important. So what's the standard for whether a couple is good for each other or whether someone should date and what dating should look like? And in our current day and age, in our culture, we're bombarded with all sorts of media. And I came across this the other day. 15 Korean celebrity couples that will make you fall in love again, make you believe in love again, like including G-Dragon and Jenny. I don't know who G-Dragon is. Sounds like a cool guy. But you see, I, I think that's the couple of the decade on the left there, right? Like crash landing on you. That's the couple. They met on set and now they're happily married, right? So 15 Korean. So we kind of have this image that this is what dating looks like. This is what love ought to look like. This is what our marriages and our relationships ought to look like. So the question, as I'm painting this picture, the question is not whether you should date or not, or what you look to even. The question is, is a little bit more deeper and reflective, is who are you becoming when you do date? And why is it that you're dating? Who are you becoming when you date? And why is it that you date? And I chose the passage today because it speaks into the heart of the matter, into every matter, because as some would say, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That is to say that in every decision we make, in the passage, as we see here today, the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. And do we think about our relationships in that way? Do we think about the way we talk to one another, the one we relate to another, as God's glory being at stake? Because the undertone of this passage today really has to do with where our priorities are. Who is it that we're following? Who is it that we love? What is it that we love? The big idea I have for us is this. When we make God our everything, we make everything about God. When we make God our everything, we make everything about God. We, we see how we can get in trouble because we can fill that, uh, we make God, we can fill God with something else. When we make what I think my everything, then we make everything about what I think. Or we make uh, the other person are everything, then we make the other person, everything about the other person, right? We, whatever it is that we fill God with in that slot, it becomes our love, it becomes the reason for our being. There's St. Augustine of Hippo, he wrote 
works uh, like City of God and Confessions. He's this, the, perhaps known as one of the greatest Christian philosophers of antiquity. He said this once in his book, Confessions, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement. But we get in trouble, as I was mentioning, because we replace God with something else. And he says this later on in his book as well, that the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. So sin, as Augustine argues, is ultimately a lack of love either for God or for our neighbor. And disordered love means that we often love less important things more. I'm going to say that again. Disordered love means that we often love less important things more and more important things less than we ought to. And this wrong prioritization leads to unhappiness and disorder in our lives. So the whole point here is that where are our loves? What is our priority, especially in the context of dating and context of relationship? And there's three points for us as we unpack that a little bit. Point number one, loving God starts by listening. Loving God sets boundaries. Number two, loving God sets boundaries around relationships. Number three, when we reorient our loves, we reorient our lives. Number one, loving God starts by listening to God. We see this right in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He answered them, of all the, command, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So a teacher of the law, a scribe, someone that's well-versed in Scripture comes and asks Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? You see, under Jewish custom, there were 613 laws. 365 of them were in the negative, don't do this. And 248 of them were in the positive. So it's so difficult to remember which one I'm supposed to do at which moment. How are you to memorize this? So the passage we're studying here that Jesus speaks on, uh, it's called the Shema. Uh, it's called the Shema, which Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. And the word Shema uh, is the first word of the confession here, which we're about to study, which means to hear. To hear. See, for thousands of years, morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed this as their devotion to God. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to give this a try here in Hebrew. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For centuries, every Jewish home would recite that morning and evening. Obeying the Lord, listening uh, loving the Lord starts with Shema, starts with listening and hearing. And Shema is connected with the ears, but the word Shema is quite, uh, used quite often, 1,154 times actually uh, in the Bible. And the Bible Project, uh, which I got some of this material from, they, they do a great job on elaborating on this word. So just Google Bible Project Shema and you'll see all the videos they have on there. So go and listen uh, to them. But we see words like in Genesis uh, 3, 8, that then the man and his wife heard Shema, Shema, the sound of the Lord, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Or in Exodus 2, 24, God Shema, or heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and, and with Isaac and with Jacob. So this idea of Shema has to do with listening, with hearing, 
voice, uh, a God's voice or each other's voices, but it has to do more than that. It has to do with more than that. It's not just about hearing noises or having sound waves impact your eardrum. That's not that, that, that only understanding of, of Shema. It also carries the understanding of paying attention to. So when you read Shema, it's, it carries this understanding of pay attention to what's about to happen. Pay attention to what you're about to hear. Pay attention or focus on something particular that's about to be spoken to you. It connotes the idea of needing to respond to what you hear as well. So it's like the psalmist. That we hear Shema all the time throughout the psalm. Psalm 27, 7. Shema my voice. Hear my voice when I call. We're not just saying to God, listen to the voice, that the sound coming out of my mouth. No, hear my cry, right? Like, understand my cry. Shema my voice. Understand my, my cry. Understand what my longing is. Or Psalm 102, 1. Shema, hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. But what's even more fascinating is that it's not just asking someone to respond or it's not just hearing a voice. The word Shema also helps us to see that there's obedience connected to it. Like in Genesis 26, 45, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham, Shema, obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions that the people will be blessed because Abraham obeyed what he heard. So what's the point here? I will listen. Loving God starts with listening, but listening and doing and obeying is part of the Shema. It's two sides of the same coin. In fact, if you listen and you didn't obey, then you, in the word of Shema, in the way of what Jesus is saying, you never really listened to begin with. Because listening and obeying are two sides of the same coin, and they're paired together. So on this topic, you're like, why are you going off on this, and what does this have to do with dating? On <laughs> the topic of dating and relationships, and it, it, it overlaps into many other parts of life, Trying to answer the questions like, should you date? What is dating? And who should you date? The question beneath these questions really is, really are, where is God in any of it? Are you listening to God? What is he saying? What do you think God cares about? How do you think God feels about your relationship? Do you care about what he feels? Do you care about what he says? How do you think God feels about you in this moment? That's what the idea of Shema carries. It's understanding from God and hearing from him and following through with what he has for us. And here's the answer to those. I don't know what the answer is for, for you, but the answer should never lead to guilt. It should never, never lead to shame. It ought to lead to repentance if there is a turning that's needed for us. But the voice of guilt and shame isn't the voice of God, but of, of the devil. That this is meant for us to draw closer to him, to be in a closer relationship with him. Because ultimately, the Shema is about priorities. It's about God helping us to realign ourselves to him, to us to experience the good life and good relationships and goodness in life that he has for us. And when I was dating uh, in late high school, uh, there was people that warned me I shouldn't be dating. I'm like, yeah, yeah, what do you know? You, know, <laughs> you shouldn't be doing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, my, my youth leaders are telling me all this. And, and the, the girl I was dating at the moment, uh, at that moment, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Christian. And I remember I got baptized at the beginning of grade 12. And then that's when I was, like, taking my faith more seriously. Yeah, Jesus, I'm going all in for you. Uh, and I remember I got baptized in December. And in January, we were having tensions because our youth group, uh, at that time, not youth group, Zion Fellowship, for those that remember that long ago, uh, Zion Fellowship. Uh, 
it was Saturday night, and it was a movie that night that she wanted to watch, and she said, I'm like, no, I got to go to uh, fellowship that night, and she said to me that night, you either choose church or you choose me. What would you say? What would you do? I, I know this is all hindsight, because that girl I was dating wasn't Jess, right? <laughs> uh, and in that moment, what would you say? What, are, what is your priority? What would you say in that moment? Because the, real, the, the, the questions that Jesus asked, and the Shema has real life implications here. What would it look like to live out the Shema every day? What would it look like to live out the Shema in your relationships, in your dating, in your marriage, in, in your friendships? What would it look like to live out the Shema in your, in, in your everyday life? Because what this all speaks to is really putting boundaries around our relationships. Putting boundaries around our hearts and guarding our hearts. Because in that moment, I, I paused, I didn't give an answer, but I knew what the answer was going to be. As I was, share, as I was talking to my mentors, they were like, well, you know what the answer ought to be. Are you going to follow Christ or not? What does that look like for you in that moment? And you see, this Shemaiah paints this boundary, this healthy boundary for us, because boundaries are key to preserving freedom and responsibility and ultimately love, especially in dating. And this goes to point number two, that loving God sets boundaries around our relationships. See, boundaries are important for two reasons, and maybe when I talk about boundaries, you're like, oh man, Doug's going old school, talking about chastity belts and like, you know, stuff from Downton Abbey, uh, right? Like, you know, what, what are we talking about here, right? Well, boundaries, like if, if you follow God naturally, if you have a belief system, there's boundaries to that system that keep you and guard you and, and have you leading in a certain way. And I recommend this book as well, uh, Passion and Purity by Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife. Uh, if your goal is purity of heart, be prepared to be thought very odd. That if your, 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 your goal is to be pure, is to honor God, is to follow him, then be prepared to be thought odd by, uh, by those in the world, by those that wouldn't do something uh, like this in our culture. You see, these boundaries, uh, why they're important is because, firstly, they define us. These boundaries define us. Boundaries show what we are and what we are not what we agree and disagree with, what we love and what we hate. See, like when, we, when you tell the other person that you're dating, that you're serious about your spiritual life and you're serious about Christ and you desire someone that has those same desires as well, you're communicating a boundary. You're communicating something that's important to you that you're hoping that the other person will think is important to them as well. So they define us, uh, these boundaries. Secondly, they, they protect us. Even the simple boundary of as we get closer to relationship to one another, uh, these boundaries, they protect us, right? Like, I'm not going to date a certain uh, kind of person. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm, I, I won't date or see other people when I'm in this dating relationship, right? That you've defined that boundary because I'm in relationship with someone. That means I'm not going to be in relationship with someone else. Like, you naturally, that's the boundary uh, that you have set. So they define us, but they also protect us. They protect your relationship. They protect your heart. Uh, it protects us from unnecessary hurts and harms and pain. So what do boundaries ultimately, ultimately protect, though? See, boundaries, maybe on a property, like you have a fence, right, that protects your house. Like, get off my yard! You know, like that's kind of what the fence does, right, for the kids that run around and digging things up. Well, as boundaries protect a property, boundaries in our relationships, boundaries in dating, they protect your soul. They protect your soul from losing your soul, from your soul waning away, from losing sight of God, from walking away from Jesus. Because if we don't have, have these healthy boundaries, we might lose freedom, 
of who you are, freedom that God has called you to be. Uh, if you don't have these healthy boundaries, you might be with the person that you're not meant to be with, and you're struggling in your intention. You're like, why are we fighting so much? Why are we in such tension? Why is this not going the way that I thought? I want him or I want her to have these desires of mine, but he doesn't or she doesn't. Or dating from inner hurts and pains that you're dating, not within these boundaries that keep us safe, but these, these boundaries that really uh, serve your own needs, these inner hurts that you have that you haven't wrestled with yet. Uh, if you don't have those boundaries, maybe that's why we're in these relationships. If you don't have these healthy boundaries, it might keep you from dating altogether. I don't really know. Right? So it's, <laughs> I don't know who I'm looking for. So it keeps us from dating. Uh, it's, it keeps us from uh, um, con control issues. I can go on. It keeps us from doing too much in a relationship. You're trying to earn the love of the other person. Uh, you're trying to prove yourself. Uh, maybe, maybe you're not taking on responsibility that you should take. The list goes on. You see, dating is complicated. And we need to go back down to why we do what we do. When we're dating, many questions arise and you need, we need time and space to do a heart check. But you also need these boundaries to hold you together. And that's where God really comes in. Where is God in the picture of your relationships? Where is he in, in your priority list? And there's no easy way to go into this, but, and, and as I mentioned last week and through this whole series, that some of us might agree with what I'm preaching, uh, and some of you might be offended. It might not agree with you. And after last week's uh, sermon on singleness, there's a whole bunch of questions. I welcome them. Let's, let's wrestle with them together. Let's talk with them together. Let, let's, let's discern together. And there's no easy way to go into this question, but the question of, I get asked often, time and time again, is it a sin to date a non-Christian? Is it a sin for a Christian to date a non-Christian? Now, John Piper, he has a short but great podcast I want to recommend. Just type in that question, should a date Christian date a non-Christian, or is it a sin, something like that. John Piper, and it will come up as the first thing. And two things he says. First thing, he's, he says, well, he asked the question, what would you define a sin? Right? What's your definition of sin to begin with? Uh, and his definition of sin uh, which is defined as missing the mark or falling short of the glory of God. So the first question is, what is sin? How would you define it? How, how would you see that in the context of relationship? But secondly, he talks about desire. Talks about desire. Like, what are you really desiring in your relationship? And this is where the quote that caught my attention. Uh, there can't be any deep union of soul if two people have different supreme treasures, one Christ and another something in creation. There's a deep disunion from the outset. That hit me hard when I read that. I don't know how that hits you, but because this question, this comment speaks into the heart of desire, speaks into the heart of what it is that we're seeking. Because if Jesus is your everything, the deepest and most significant parts of your needs, they need to find a home in the heart of the most important relationship you're about to embark on. If your relationship with Jesus is that significant, then there, and the other person, there ought to be a home for that as well. And that's just not for Christ. You can argue that for anything. That's our understanding of relationship, or else there's going to be that tension. So the question really comes back down to, as we're digging deeper and deeper and deeper, if you're talking about dating, should I date? Who should I date? What does dating look like? The question maybe we should ask is, where is Jesus in the relationship? First, where is our desire for Jesus in this relationship because no matter how difficult it is we need to ask questions like is this the person god meant for me are we spiritually compatible 
How do I bring God into the relationship the right way? How do we relate spiritually? What if we disagree spiritually? What does that look like? Am I in denial about the spiritual conflicts we might have? Does your dating relationship bring you closer or farther away from God? Those are the deep questions we ought to be asking. Not just, who do I like? Or am I attracted to the person? Or where should I be? Who should I date? These are questions that dig us deeper into the questions that you're really asking. As Cloudon Townsend in the book that I quoted from uh, earlier says this, it's not about how we fit our spiritual life into our dating lives. It's about how we fit our dating lives into our spiritual life. Which one goes first? Is it the spiritual life that you care about first, and then you're trying to make dating work in that, or is it dating that's first, and you're like, well, I'll add a bit of Jesus in there. That's a real question that we have to ask ourselves. So which comes to the third point. We, when we reorient our loves, we reorient our lives. Verse 30, love the Lord your God, as Jesus says here, quoting the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Hear and obey. What's the first thing that we read here? I'll break this down a little bit here. It's to love. The Greek word that was used here is agape, which we're familiar with, the sacrificial, selfless kind of love. So we're to uh, sacrificially and selflessly love the Lord. But in the Hebrew that he's quoting from in in Deuteronomy, it's uh, ahava. And this word means having affection towards someone. So love the Lord means to have your affection, that God has your attention. This is the way you fall in love uh, with someone. You have, they have all your attention in that moment. God, does he have your attention? Do you love him in that way? Because we use this word love so loosely. And you've heard me say that before in a sermon. I love pizza. I love ice cream. I love this and that. And then the very next phrase, I also say, I love God. Well, do I love ice cream the same as I love God? No, but, but we use the same words. We have to be intentional because words matter. Uh, word, words matter, but this word, uh, th- this love here is a deep kind of love, this love for God. As, as, as James K. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, he says this, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. That's what, that's what it looks like to love God when your wants and your loves, your longings, everything about you is it's affectionate, it's, it's pointed towards God. Also like this quote from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and he is a, a French poet, writer, pioneering aviator. He says this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work, but rather teach them to long, long for the endless immensity of the sea. What he's getting at here is that whatever your desires are, whatever your longings are, that's where your life is going to orient towards. What you desire is where you're going to go towards. So it starts off, the Shema here, listen, but also to love. Love who? Love the Lord. As I go back to that verse, love the Lord. Loving God changes our allegiances because we're loving God who is our Lord. He's our Lord. He's our master, except he's not a master that tells us to do a bunch of things, like just to get to work. No, he's a God that saves us and helps us to 
reorient our loves to something that is better than we could ever imagine, towards a love, a life that is uh, better than we, than we could ever imagine. He helps us to experience a fuller life that we couldn't do on our own. And this is our God. This is our Lord. He's our master that only has good things for us. And with our heart, our heart isn't just a physical organ that pumps blood. Yes, the ancient Hebrews, they weren't, you know, so spiritual, like, well, the heart, they understood that as well, right? <laughs> the heart pumps blood. But what uh, they also understood it, stood it as, is that the heart is the very place where you think and you make sense of the world. That you understand the world from your heart. This is where you feel emotions and you make your choices from it. And is that why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That where your treasure is, that is where your longing is. And that's whatever your longing is, that's how you're going to make your decisions. That's how you're going to decide what you're going to do. And your soul, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The Hebrew understanding of soul is that people don't have a soul. That people are souls. That everything about you, you're just living, breathing, spiritual being. That there isn't a separation. Love the Lord your God with your soul and also with your mind. And this isn't just talking about intellect as much as, much as, as talking about whether God... It's not talking about intellect. It's talking more about whether God is filling our minds. Is God even in your mind, on your mind, when you're making a certain decision? When you're living your life, where is God in it? Do we think and remember his goodness, love, mercy, and beauty in our lives, in the way that we live. What fills our minds every day? And strength. It's translated as strength here, but this word is usually added on to something else. It makes, uh, it increases the intensity of something. It, it means very, it means much. So it is a word that intensifies uh, another word. So quite literally, in loving God with your strength, it means to love the Lord your God with all your muchness. With everything that you got, with all your muchness. This, is, this means to devote every possibility, every opportunity, every capacity to honor God. All that you are, all your muchness, everything that you are, you dedicate that to God. And when we love God in this way, it doesn't only change us, but it changes how we interact with other people people as well, which is why Jesus goes on to say, and love your neighbor as well, because it transcends the relationship. It goes beyond the relationship. It overflows from this relationship we have with Jesus. Now, as I'm talking about this, loving the Lord your God and all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, people ask me, what does it mean to be yoked unevenly? Or what does Jesus really mean, mean by that? And I think what the Bible talks about there in this moment is talking about this spiritual autonomy here that here in this loving of god is actually a personal relationship between you and god it's it's this personal relationship that we have with god that we uh, interact with, uh, with with jesus it's spiritual autonomy that we have that we are responsible for our own faith and this spiritual autonomy is is important in dating because the people that we date how are they on this on this scale as well if you're looking for someone to match you in this spiritual intensity, where is the other person in it as well? Because this spiritual autonomy it speaks to the ability of one person to be responsible for their own religious direction and motivation. So often what I hear in couples is like, oh, I don't know, I'm trying to you know, have him or her share in devotions or to pray with me or to do all these things. But then the question is, where is the other person in the spiritual 
uh, their spiritual autonomy? Where is their relationship with Jesus? Is Jesus their everything? Is Jesus on their mind? Is, is Jesus their love? Because if it's not, what you're doing is a really tough uphill battle that you're fighting against because you're fighting against someone's love and their affections and their desires. So when someone asks how, who they should date, whether it should be a Christian or not, or someone asks how old they need to be when they date, that's often a question I get from teens, <laughs> how old they need to be when they date. I hope you're getting the message here that it's not about age in any of this. It's actually about maturity. It's actually about understanding. It's not actually about your relationship with Christ and where he is in your relationships. Because in this immaturity, it leads to hurtful relationships, and that's not something that any of us want. So, more questions for us. The question is, sh isn't so much of should you date, when you should date, and who you should date. Those are good questions, but the better questions that I've asked a lot, I hope you're writing this down. You can ask me for the PowerPoint or my notes <laughs> afterwards. This is what it comes down to. Who are you date? Who are you in your dating? And who are you becoming as you're dating? In the Christian context, is it moving you closer or farther away from Christ? Is it honing into that affection, the love for God in your relationship? What is the fruit of your dating for you and for the people that you date? As you're dating and living out that life, how are you treating them and what are you learning about yourself, about your own motivations, about your own shortcomings? Because as I mentioned already here, Jesus says this in verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than this. If you want to love your spouse, if you want to love the person you're dating, you want to love people more, love God more. Understand that love. Have your affections tuned to him because God is not this selfish God that doesn't, that this hoards this love and doesn't want you to care and love other people. No, Jesus came to earth in the form of a man to show us what love is, moved into the neighborhood to love us and to care for us. And we ought to do the same thing. But sometimes in our relationships, the other person becomes a little bit too much of a priority more than God. And I share this, and I've shared this before in some of the dating conversations that we've done in the fellowship, uh, Jess and I. We shared about a time when, when we were dating. This was second or third year university, uh, I think. Jess, correct me if I'm wrong. My memory uh, before the kids are it's kind of gone. Uh, so uh, we were. She was like, it's getting up to Easter, and it's 40 days of Lent. And then I'm like, we're just like, what should, let's pray through this. What should we Lent? And Jess is like, I'm gonna Lent you. I'm like, what? Like that's not on the list, All right? The list is food, coffee, you know. <laughs> Like, I'm not on this list, okay? And she's like, what, what, what do I mean? Well, I feel like we've been a little bit too close to each other, that we really maybe been idolizing this relationship a little bit too much. And that for the next 40 days, except for Sundays, which I look forward to Sundays so much, during those 40 days, never, you know, probably for wrong reasons, I'll confess, right? But in those 40 days, we lent at each other and it was hard. But why did we do what we do there? It was because in that moment, we felt our loves and our affections shifting away from Christ. And we needed to do something physically, which is what Lent is all about. Do, needing to do something physically that reorientated our loves, and which led to us reorientating our lives. Now, practically, I want to end with this. If you're in a dating relationship and you're like, I am dating a non-Christian, what does this mean? I'm going to leave that between you and God. 
But there are very practical ways, I believe, that you can share in your faith and grow in your relationship with one another here. That if you're in a dating relationship, you don't know what to talk about, maybe you're taking notes, you're wanting to date, and you want to lead the conversation, write these down, all right? These are great conversation starters in your next date. But practically, what does it look like? Maybe if you're getting to know one another, share your faith story. Where is God in your life? How did you come to faith? Hear each other's testimonies. Ask questions about their lives. Ask questions like, wait, so when you're a teen or when you're in university or when you came to faith later on, like, like what happened there? And that makes for great conversation and great learning. Share your values. Talk theology. Talk calling in life. Relationships. What relationships mean to you? Job, career, finances, family, sex, social issues. Talk about your values in those things because those are great conversations that connect you in a deeper level. Share your struggles. I know maybe on your first date you don't want to do this. Like, ah, you know, I'm struggling. <laughs> you, know, you might scare them away. Don't blame me. I gave you a warning. Right? Maybe you want to save that for date three, four, five. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to want to share something deeper in the struggle. Because if you don't know your date... If you don't know the spiritual struggles of your date, it can be argued you don't know them at all. There needs to be a knowing of that. Maybe periods of being unsure about God's care for, your, for existence. Maybe there's a time when sharing your struggle of living life apart from God where you fell away. Or maybe the spiritual struggle that you have challenging, uh, the spiritual adolescence where you challenge everything you were taught and everything you knew. And then you rejected that. Or maybe there's times of self-absorption where you're like, it was all about me and then Jesus came in. But you want to share in those struggles. Because the other person might just say, me too. And there's a moment of connection there. But fourthly, surround yourself with strong biblical community that guards you, that moves you forward, that you're able to ask these questions in. As Jesus gave the Shema, the scribe said this, Well said, teacher, the man replied, You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, it's not just about doing more. It's actually about your relationship with God. It's about making God your everything. Because when you make God your everything, everything is about God, becomes about God. It's not about burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's about your relationship and about your loves and how you can orient yourself towards him. And Jesus says this, and this ought to wreck us. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because he heard, because he's obeying, because he listened, you're not far from experiencing God's goodness and kingdom. You get it. You get what God's kingdom is about. You are part of a heaven-touching earth. You are bringing heaven onto the places that you are right now simply by listening and obeying. Then don't we want that in our relationships? Don't we want that in our marriages? Don't we want that in our friendships? Don't we want that in our lives to be walking around bringing heaven to earth for everyone to experience that? So the question I want to leave with after asking 100 questions, here's three more. <laughs> Where is the Shema in your life? Where is the Shema in your relationships? And who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Because I hope that today you're just a little bit closer to Jesus than you were yesterday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you, God, that you don't heap guilt and shame upon us, but you call us, Lord, to draw closer to you, 
and to love you more. So, Father, I pray for all of us, for those of us that are dating or single or married, whatever context we find ourselves in, Father, I pray that you would realign our loves to you, that you would tune our affections to you. May you be the centerpiece of our lives. May you be our priority. And may the rest of our lives, God, just be in connection to that, to you. May we experience goodness and joy and gladness in our lives, in our relationships, because we loved you first. Jesus, may you be honored in our lives through all that we do, especially in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.